Well, as you can see from the screen, the title of this morning's sermon is Devoted to Prayer. Devoted to Prayer. Now, you think about that word, you don't hear that word very often. It's not that common of a word. It would be nice to maybe expand our vocabulary sometimes. There's a lot of words we don't use that are fascinating words, but Devoted isn't really one of them. When you think about this word, though, what it means is the state of being ardently dedicated and loyal, the act of being dedicated to a cause, enterprise, or activity, or a third definition is focused or fixated entirely on the display, study, or discussion of someone or something. So focused or fixated entirely on someone or something. This idea of the state of being ardently dedicated and loyal. Or being dedicated to a cause. That's what we mean when we use this word devoted. So now put that in front of prayer. Devoted to prayer. We're talking about a singular focus and occupation. This is the thing that is driving me. This is is the thing that I'm preoccupied with. I'm fixated on. Is being devoted to prayer. And you think about devotion in general. Devotion is directly connected to passion fascination with something or captivation with something. So you think about being enthusiastic about something, being dedicated or loyal to something, that's just a byproduct of being interested in something. Again, fascinated, captivated, or passionate about something. See, if you're passionate about something or fascinated by something or deeply interested or captivated by something, then you're naturally devoted to the things that you're interested in or enthusiastic about. It's, It's one comes from the other. As you find something that catches your fancy or really grabs your interest, those are the things then that you become devoted to. You become focused or fixated entirely on. And it's easy to find examples of devotion as it relates to various aspects of your life. Now think about, you may not use that word, but when you talk about being fixated or focused on something, having a passion or a fascination or a captivation with something that causes you to have somewhat of a singular focus or occupation, you can think of examples as it it deals with or relates to relationships that you might have in your life. There are certain relationships that you're devoted to that you're fixated on. And you can think about them in your life, and it's not true of everybody, but many people can think of different relationships in their life that they're committed to, that they're devoted to, and that they're focused on. And often, you know, if you think about, if you're married, it ought to be your spouse. If you have children, it probably should be your children that you're devoted to. You think about other things like work. Very often, if you've been taught a good work ethic, if that's how you were raised, you might be devoted to your work, meaning that you're dedicated and loyal. It would be that part of the the definition. Not necessarily that you'd be enthusiastic about it, but that if you were taught a good work ethic, you would be dedicated and loyal to it. You'd be focused on the job at hand when you're at work. Now, you can go around any workplace and you can identify pretty quickly the people who are not devoted to their work, And sometimes maybe that's you. But you can also quickly identify the people who are devoted to their work, meaning that they're loyal, they're dedicated, they're focused on getting the job done. And generally speaking, of course, in any workplace, just like in any organization, just like in any home, there's two kinds of people. There's the kind of people who are focused on getting the work done, and then there's the people who are focused on watching them get the work done. And you think about that and even be prayerful about that as it comes to, frankly, your job, your home, because God wants us to be doing all things heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. We're, we're not motivated by a desire to please men to be hard workers. Being a hard worker doesn't make us righteous, but as God wants us to do everything with a zeal that would be as best as we could as unto him, how is that going to reflect itself when it comes to our activities around the home, our efforts around the home, our efforts on the job? or even our interest in being used or being a part of the solution as it relates to even what needs to be done here in the local church. I mean, the idea or the concept of a body of believers is that everyone comes together and does their part. And some of that has to do with how, how devoted or motivated are you by the cause? How are you convinced that it's worthwhile? And are you willing to trust the Lord to, one, bring about that attitude in you, but secondly, to use you then and work in you 
to be a part of the solution to all of the, all of the need that is right in front of you. Now, you can think about other things that a people are devoted to. We have relationships and work, but how about projects? You think sometimes about having like a singular focus, being dedicated and loyal to something, being devoted to it. And you can see that in your lives sometimes when you just decide, here's something that just has to be done. And you kind of push everything else off to the side and you're just singularly focused on that thing in that moment. And maybe it's that you had a project that you had been putting off and right now, finally, this is the time that it's going to get done. And you don't. Maybe you even forego meals. I mean, some of you are that extreme. You know, that you get just so fixated on a certain thing. My dad used to say that all the time. We'd start working early in the morning on a project and it'd get to be, you know, get to be 12 o'clock. We'd be starting to have our stomachs rumbling. We'd be saying, can we take a break to eat? And he says, he'd say, we can eat when the job's done. <laughs> you know, that's, that's devotion. We didn't have that same level of devotion to his project. <laughs> we would be perfectly happy to take a break. But you think about that, maybe it's a project. Or maybe when you think about devotion and you're thinking of examples in your life, your hobbies are the thing that comes to mind. And you think about, come hell or high water, nothing's going to stop you from getting out for your golf outing or your fishing outing or your, even if there's 10 feet of snow, you're going to make it to your bowling league. One of the things, though, as I was thinking about devotion is that as you think about the things that you're devoted to, isn't it true that not all of the things that you're devoted to are always exciting, joy-filled, or glamorous? You think about like hobbies, like it might be good to be devoted to a, a very loving relationship with your spouse. You know, there's, there's a nice flavor to that. But there's other things that you find or you maybe thought about when I was talking about these examples and you said, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff I'm devoted to, but none of it is exactly glamorous or exciting or fun. The other thing is that not necessarily when you think about devotion, these are not necessarily the things that you originally wanted to be involved in, but you're devoted to them nonetheless. And I was thinking about some of the things that people end up devoted to that they didn't really ever plan to be devoted to. Like, for example, a pet where you weren't really that excited about getting a pet or didn't want one, but you capitulated in terms of, am I just telling my own stories here this morning? <laughs> you capitulated and ended up with an energetic puppy that barks at everyone. And now you're devoted to this animal, even though that wasn't even something that you were that excited about to begin with. But the point in all this is that as you think about these different things you can be devoted to, and there's fun examples and there's less glamorous examples. You know, you think about even you, you bought a property and you thought you didn't really consider the idea that somebody was going to have to mow this lawn. But you bought the property nonetheless and for whatever reason you didn't decide to let it or the city wouldn't allow you to just <laughs> let I'm still telling my own stories here. And all of a sudden now you find yourself day after day after day mowing this property. Well, that's a sense of devotion that you have to this thing, even though you weren't even excited about it or didn't really want to do it. But my point in all this is there's all these things that we find ourselves devoted to when you think about being dedicated to or you end up being focused on them. But they're not necessarily the things that matter most. As we, as we quickly make a segue into the spiritual side of it, there's all these human, the, the realities of life kind of things that we become devoted to. And those are not the things that lend themselves to our spiritual growth. They're not the things that, pro, I would say, promote our spiritual well-being even. They're just things that happen to be a part of everyday life that if we're not careful, we find ourselves fixated on because we had a captivation, fascination, passion for those things most often or because they just fell in our lap. But either way, all of our time ends up getting eaten up by these things that we are regularly 
dedicated to and loyal to, something that it, we become occupied with. And all of a sudden, all of our time gets eaten up by those things and we're not devoted to or we're not thinking about the things that we should be devoted to from a faith perspective that would lend themselves to our spiritual growth or our spiritual well-being. And you think about all the things, and I gave examples of things that you wouldn't have necessarily had that much enthusiasm for, but yet you sort of unintentionally became devoted to. But I want you to just focus now on the things that you are intentionally enthusiastic about, the things that you're intentionally fascinated by or captivated by that have nothing, they have no potential even for contributing to your spiritual well-being. Because they're the things of this world. And the things of this world, ultimately, though they're not all sinful, many of them fall within this area of personal liberty where we could fill our time with or be interested in or fascinated by those things, but those things in and of themselves, they're not associated with godliness. They don't have any divine viewpoint wrapped into them. So there's nothing about bowling or golfing or fishing that has divine viewpoint wrapped into it. Now, we can put some divine viewpoint into it while we're doing it, but the things in and of themselves don't have divine viewpoint wrapped into them so that they could fuel our soul or minister to our spiritual well-being while we participate in those things. And so God wants us to have that same zeal and enthusiasm and dedication for talking to Him and for seeking after and pursuing our spiritual growth and spiritual well-being as we do for this zeal and passion and enthusiasm that we find ourselves having for all of these things that are passing away, all of these things that are temporal, all of these things that cannot produce any eternal value. They don't have any lasting value in them. They're, They're things that are here and gone, but they don't have any lasting eternal value. And God, we, he sees us, and, and it must just make him sad. We're personifying God to a certain extent there. But it must just grieve him to watch us have this zeal for all these useless things, but not have that same zeal for him. And, and if you talk about having a zeal for God, that, that zeal that we find ourselves having for the, again, those transient things, those temporal things. And you know, you can, right now, I, I guarantee that you can think of something in your life where that's true. And, and you're thinking, man, I, I do have more zeal for that than I do for God. But if you really were to have a zeal for God, wouldn't it start with having a zeal for talking to Him? For communicating with Him? for living life and interacting with him on a personal, tangible level. You think about God is not this distant and far away God. We sometimes have trouble with making him near and close because he's, he's a little bit hard to get a hold of sometimes. But as we think about how Jesus gave us that example of how God could be gotten a hold of, how, how the word became flesh, And he dwelt among us so that we could behold God's glory. Now, it was his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It was his glory, but it was God's glory because God is indivisible. So, in a sense, when you see, Christ says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so, the Father, God, in a more distant kind of a conceptual way, took on a human form in the form of Jesus so that we could relate to him and see Jesus in a more tangible and personal and close and intimate way. And the question is, how, how good are we doing at that? How, how well are we accomplishing that task of having that intimacy and closeness with God? Now, again, we have that closeness and that enthusiasm and that zeal for all of these other things. How about, how about our relationship with the Creator God, the God of the universe, the one who loved us and gave Himself for us? How's that going? How much zeal and enthusiasm do we have for that? Well, Paul, as we think about his prayer that we're going to look at this morning, Paul is saying, my goal or my prayer or my wish for you is that you would have this sense where you would have this devotion to talking to me, like you have this devotion so naturally for all of these other things that have such little value compared to having a relationship with me. Compared to all of these other relationships that you have value in, that you have zeal for, enthusiasm for, that you're investing in, how about me? Would you, be in, would you be willing to invest anything in me? Have any enthusiasm for me? Want to talk to me the same way that you're eager to talk to your buddy or to talk to your spouse or to talk to your children or to talk to your father or to talk to your brother 
or to talk to your coworkers, or to talk to these other people that you have the same interests in, where you can't wait to see them so that you can share what's going on in your life with them. How about having that same fascination with me? And Paul reminds these Colossian believers, it happens to be the Colossian believers that he says this to, that prayer or talking to God is something that they should be passionate about. It's something they should be devoted to. It's something that they should have a singular focus and occupation on. So if you haven't turned there, like I haven't turned there, turn to Colossians chapter 4. We have a relatively small section this morning. We probably could have gotten through it fairly quickly if I could stick to the script here. Man, it hits you like a ton of bricks sometimes when you just think about all the things that capture my fancy when he's the one who should capture my fancy. We're going to pick up in verse 2 and read through verse 4, chapter 4 of Colossians. Paul says this, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. That's the general admonition. That's the exhortation that I hope you take away here this morning. Then he comes back to himself and he says, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So again, there's not a tremendous amount of volume here, but there's a lot of things that should really prick our thinking really convict us as we look at this. Colossians 4.2 here, starting there, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. And this statement here represents the only imperative in this paragraph. As you think about different moods that you have in the Greek language, the imperative mood is to emphasize, you could say, it's almost like the mood of an exclamation point, where this is critical or vital information. And in the context of what Paul is saying, it's critical or vital to what? It's critical or vital to your spiritual growth or your spiritual well-being. And the statement here that is the imperative is continue earnestly in prayer. Continue earnestly in prayer. And you think about this word continue, it's, it's defined as to persist in an activity, to persist in an activity, to keep doing it, keep on doing it. It's in the present tense. It indicates continued action, something that happens repeatedly or something that is in the process of happening. Paul is saying, this isn't the kind of thing that I'm saying do to check off something on a list and then move on to something else. It's to be convinced that this is important and then to keep on doing it. Now, when he says to keep on doing this, which is, we know it's prayer, keep on praying, he says, he describes it with this word earnestly. Now, in the Greek language, this is all one word. Continue and, earnest, continue and earnestly are one word. So continue earnestly. It's one verb in Greek. Now, it's described as the persistent activity that is, this is the persistent activity that is being encouraged or exhorted. It's being described further here in English with this word earnestly. Now, you think about that word, it's not a common word either. You think about devotion, not really a common word. Earnestly, not something that unless you have a little bit more advanced vocabulary, you're not going to be using earnestly either. But it means to give constant attention to a thing with sincere and intense conviction. To take something seriously is another definition. Or to per persevere to the point of devotion, which now includes that word devotion that we have for our title, devoted to prayer. So about half of the English translations, if you were going to look at other translations besides New King James or King James, you would see that they use the phrase Devote yourselves to prayer instead of continue earnestly in prayer. About half, a little bit more than half actually, just choose the definition of devotion to have this persevere to the point of devotion, that that's the mindset that's being communicated here. But you get the same idea with continue earnestly. It's to give constant or ongoing sincere and intense effort or conviction, be convicted about something to the point where it starts to become a persistent activity in your life. And that's the idea that Paul is trying to communicate as it re relates to prayer because we have continue earnestly in what? Well, in prayer. 
To have this constant attention, this perseverance, this take it seriously, be convicted, have this intense conviction about the importance of prayer is ultimately what Paul is getting at. So prayer is nothing more when you think about it. It's nothing more than talking, communicating, or speaking to God. And you think about, how can I talk to God? Well, you can do it in your thoughts. You can do it verbally and speak to God. Those are two main ways you can communicate. God, because He knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts, He knows your thoughts. And so if He knows the thoughts and intents of your hearts and He knows what you're thinking, you don't even have to necessarily verbalize it. You can be in the quiet of your mathematics test if you're somebody who's in college. If you're an adult, in the quiet of whatever trial that you're facing at work or at home, whatever challenging thing you have with your spouse or your children, whatever difficulty you're having with your pet, you can, in the quiet of your heart, you don't have to even say anything, you can bring that need, bring that concern, bring that thought, communicate to God in that moment. Now, you can speak it out loud, too. You can do it by yourself. You can do it in private. You can do it in public. You can do it while standing. You can do it while kneeling. You can do it while driving. You can do it with your eyes open, with your eyes closed. You can do it as you're falling asleep when you're waking up. There's, re- and there's no limits to it. How refreshing is it to think that because God is everywhere and because God is an infinite God, that there's no constraints on how you can talk to Him. You know, the, the Bible, even we talked about earlier in this series, we talked about all the different postures of prayer that you can see in the Word of God. We have people who are kneeling. We have people who are lying face down on the ground. We have people who are praying while they're sitting. We have people praying while they lie down. We have people who are praying with their hands lifted. And it's, in fact, again, many examples of that in the Bible. You have all of these different postures of prayer. All of these different places of prayer. We have people praying in prisons. We have people praying on boats. We have people praying as they're traveling. People praying as they're being beaten. We have people who are praying and calling out to God even as on the last gasps of their life. As we know from even the example of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, that his last words that he wished to express were a cry out to who? To God. He says what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do not hold these transgressions or these trespasses against them. That's his concern is for the very people who are killing him, who are taking his life. But that's a prayer. In the last gasp of his life, he prays to a very personal and real God who he believes will answer those prayers because he's seen God working in his life time and time again. But that's the beauty of prayer is that when you think about people in your life, now I understand that cell phones and Technology has made this easier. But think about people in your life when you want to continue or build on or communicate with a, another person in your life. You can't necessarily do that anytime or from anywhere because there's limitations in terms of proximity or access to technology. And so you don't have this unfettered access to any person like you have this unfettered access to God. All of the time from anywhere in any way, shape, or form. You have this access to God, a God who loves you desperately more than you could ever imagine. And so as you think about that, why is it then that we can go to great lengths to maintain communication with people who should matter a lot less than God in our lives, but we can't make any effort to communicate with Him or talk to Him? And that's what Paul is getting at. He's getting at this idea that if we have this dedication to something in the sense that we're devoted to it, we see how important it is. Again, this isn't about making something mechanical or formulaic. This isn't about forcing yourself to pray through your own human strength. This is about being convinced that God is real, that God wants to live life with you, and being convinced that you would benefit from including Him in your life. And so as you are pursuing him or seeking after him because you're seeing that I want to involve you. I want to live life with you. I want to talk to you. I want to include you. You're not making me do this. Does God make us talk to him? Does God make us include him? Does God make us seek his will? Does God make us desire to have him lead in our lives? God doesn't force any of this on us. But as I'm convinced that he's awesome, that he's amazing, as I'm blown away and captivated by him, then I'm going to want to build and develop that relationship with him. I'm going to want to grow in that relationship with him. And that's 
where talking to him comes in. Why wouldn't I want to talk to him? He loves me more than anybody could ever love another person. Why wouldn't I want to talk to him? He's capable of undertaking to deal with any circumstance that I'm going through. Why wouldn't I want to talk to him? He's the only one who could faithfully lead me and never lead me astray. Why wouldn't I want to talk to him? He's the only one who could comfort me, give me hope, give me peace, give me purpose. Why am I so reluctant to talk to the one who can fill all of those needs that I have and is available all of the time? Well, that's what Paul's getting at here. And so you think about all the different ways of communicating or speaking to God. That's all he's talking about. Let's continue earnestly this conversation or speaking to God on a regular basis. Let's be devoted to that. Let's have an intense desire for that. And there's all kinds of different ways you can talk to God. We've talked about many of them in the series. You talk about just a, a conversation, an ongoing conversation where you're just talking with God. You see that in some of the Psalms we've been going through of King David. But you're also praising God. You can be requesting things of God for yourself and for others, bringing needs to God. These intercessions on behalf of others. You should be giving God thanks for all the things that he's done in your life. And then you think about this, the people that God wants you to have a concern for. You think about all the things you could talk to God about. You know how you spend all of this time if you're not careful? You spend the majority of your time when you talk to other people gossiping about third parties? True or not true? One of the, the number one things that your flesh wants to talk about when you come to have a conversation with somebody is to talk negatively about somebody else. It might be somebody that you both know. It might be somebody who's a national figure. You might be talking or lamenting a local sports figure, a, a polit political figure. You might be lamenting some national figure so that, you know, that you've seen in the news. That might be the thing that you're lamenting. But, but naturally speaking, if, if your flesh is driving the ship, the bulk of your conversations are going to involve talking negatively about someone or something else. And it could be a million examples of it, but that would be the number one thing normally that you would talk about when you talk to other people. That's a fact. And if your flesh is driving the bus, none of, very little of your conversation with other people would have any propensity to uplift your soul or to be uplifting in general. Even on a human level, it wouldn't have much propensity to be uplifting because a typical focus of conversation is negative. We're very negative people by default. So it's negative about the weather, it's negative about our jobs, it's negative about our pay, it's negative about our spouse, our kids, all these other people in our lives, the politicians, the sports people, all these people, it's always negative. That's the default. And so then you wonder, man, I'm just, I'm kind of depressed all the time. Must be the, must be the lack of vitamin C. Are you sure? No, I'm not knocking that. I, I happen to believe there is some science behind the idea that not having much sunlight it does have a negative toll, does take a negative toll on your physiological well-being. There's places, by the way, that the sun shines over 300 days a year. Minnesota's not one of them. <laughs> Northern Minnesota's somewhere on average around 160, so there's room for improvement there. But... I digress. Maybe what's getting us down is that we're not looking at the right things. We're not thinking about the right things. We're not meditating about the right things. We're not speaking about the right things. Now think about prayer. Prayer is a different animal. As you're talking to God, one of the things that we're supposed to be doing in our prayer is talking to God about other people <laughs> but not in a, I hope our prayers aren't gossipy too. Because <laughs> I think God knows everything that's going on in everyone else's life. So generally speaking, if you're praying, isn't it true that when you think about people, you're praying that God would intervene in their lives? That God would pick them up and encourage them and strengthen them and help them with what they're going through? You see, prayer, when we're finally talking to God, we're talking about people often because a big part of prayer is to intercede on behalf of other people. 
but in a positive way. See, the, the total dynamic of that conversation is different from what the typical human conversation is going to be like. Because now, as, I, as he speaks to me, it's encouraging and uplifting. It's the things I need. It's the, fuel, it's the food for my soul. It's the, thing that can, it's the thing that can energize me. His word is how he speaks to me. As he speaks to me, though, it's the, it's the word of God that ultimately is like the nutrition I need to keep me going. But it's nutritious. It's ener- it can provide energy. It can give me what I need. It can build me up. It can help me to grow. It's a, and it's not, it's not just some of what I need. It's all of what I need. And then as I talk to him, it has a positive flavor to it as well. So here's a verse just thinking about our prayer. When you talk about continuing earnestly or being have this intense conviction about the importance of something that's really what it is i mean i'm hoping you leave here convinced more than ever of the value of praying now paul here in letter to timothy he writes in first timothy 2 1 i exhort you therefore that first of all before anything else before you do anything else have supplications prayers intercessions and giving of thanks that are being made for all men you see, you'd never run out of things to talk to God about even if it was just intercessions on behalf of other people, even if it was just supplications or that refers to requests, even if it was just giving thanks. But have that be made for all men and have that be first. And then if you weren't sure that that's what the takeaway is supposed to be from this verse, he goes on to say being vigilant in it. Continue earnestly in prayer, but now be vigilant in it. And it modifies or it explains just further how believers are to pray. When we think about being vigilant, it means to be on alert, to be awake, to be watchful. You're not accidentally going to be praying for people. You're going to actually have to pray yourself that God would give you a desire to talk to him more, to include him more. You're going to have to pray that God would give you a passion for people, a desire for people, an interest in people so that you would want to be praying for them. But be watchful. The picture of this word vigilant is to be of one who's standing guard, not being complacent or losing concentration and focus, but of one who is mindful of the danger that is all around them. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle. One of the biggest resources that we have is praying to the God of the universe who is stronger than everything, bigger than everything, capable of undertaking in everything, and we don't take advantage of this, this weapon that God has given us, this powerful defensive armor that God has given us. And you think about one of them is the need to avail ourselves not just of the Word of God, but a conversation and communication in this relational kind of a way with God. Being, impor- being aware of the importance of the task at hand, that's another definition of being vigilant. And you think about, does that describe your prayer life? That it's vigilant. That it's mindful. That it's aware of the importance of this. That it's not complacent that it's awake. You think about wake up. Wake up those who are asleep. You know, we, we have these, we get the spiritual yawns. What happens after the spiritual yawns? The spiritual napping. And pretty soon we're sound asleep. We're not in a position for God to, one, enjoy a relationship with us or us to enjoy a relationship with Him. Two, we're not in a position where we can be used to the Lord because we're sound asleep. We weren't watchful. We weren't prayerful. We weren't mindful. So a lot of it is wake up out of that slumber, have the sense of being alert and being awake to the importance of something as fundamental as talking to your God. Are you convinced that if God gives you the ability to talk to Him and He's the one who can undertake and provide to meet every one of your needs, that involving Him and including Him in your life would be worthwhile? Think of all the things that you're including and involving in your life and God wants you to involve Him first in your life. Now you have this last phrase, with thanksgiving. Continue earnestly in prayer. Be vigilant about that. With thanksgiving, it's accompanying this conversation that we're having with God, it has the sense of gratitude. 
You know, the act of expressing gratitude is what we mean by with thanksgiving. To give thanksgiving is to show appreciation to someone, to have gratitude for somebody. And the Word of God repeatedly encourages this attribute or this quality in our prayer or in our way of talking to God that we would have a heart that's grateful. You see, one of the reasons that you're going to want to talk to God to begin with is that you see how great God is. You're convinced of that. You're awestruck by Him. And as you're awestruck by Him and how great He is, part of that is driven by seeing how much He loves you, what He's done for you, how He's undertaken for your life, how He provides for your every need, and how He never misses a beat, how He hasn't shortchanged you in any way, how He's never abandoned you, He's never failed you, He's never left you. He's always been faithful. And as you see that about Him, then it should change your whole mindset where you have this sense now that if God has done all of this for me and I see how small I am, I see how broken I am, I see how undeserving I am, and and God yet He would love me anyway and would provide for me anyway and would undertake in my life anyway. God would do that when I'm so undeserving of His love and so undeserving of His favor and so undeserving of His provision. What should the result of that understanding be. I would be grateful. I would be thankful. I would be skipping my way through life saying, it's like I won the lottery that God could love me so, that God could undertake for me so. I am so blessed. You talk about hashtag blessed. That's the hashtag blessed in your life. Is that you're blessed that God would take an interest in you and love you despite being unlovable. That he would know everything about you and still accept you fully and love you fully. That he would never miss out on on providing for anything that was needed in your life. That he would direct you and give you guidance and he would give you every single thing that you had a need for that you stood in need of. Do you think about that? Do you live in light of that? Is that, what, is that what's permeating your thinking? Or are you going through life just thinking like you're somehow, you were shortchanged all the time? You spend your life comparing your life to, it's not even your life, but certain circumstances in your life to other people's circumstances. And you come, you come away with this misguided belief that God somehow has shortchanged you. Isn't that what all of the media seeks to really do? Isn't, isn't that even one of the dangers of social media? I'm not here to preach against social media specifically, but one of the downsides too is that it portrays a fake and phony, there's a fake and phoniness to it. Where people naturally are celebrating the good things in their life. That's the things they want to share with others. And if you, if you were to get sucked into that, you would say, it's just bright spot, bright spot, bright spot, bright spot, bright spot. And the whole of the thing, all of it is painted to be that way. But is that reality? No, that's a curated existence. It's a curated collection of high points. But life is filled with all kinds of hard and challenging and difficult struggles, troubles, hard times. And so pretty soon, without even realizing it, you're comparing your life to something that was never real to begin with. It was all a fantasy seeking to keep you in a perpetual state of never being satisfied. Why, why would the world be interested in keeping you in a perpetual state of never being satisfied? So you keep chasing after satisfaction and happiness in all of the wrong things instead of realizing that you have everything that you've ever needed and then some. Your life's already been filled up to the point of overflowing by the God who loved you desperately and undertook to provide for your every need. You're, not, you're lacking absolutely nothing in your life. So you can have a life that's filled with contentment. You see, contentment is the opposite of never being satisfied. And contentment can only be found in a right relationship with God and understanding what He's done for you. 
So the one who's never satisfied is never thankful. They're never having a heart of gratitude because all they're focused on is the next thing or the, thing, the things that are missing in their lives. In any event, the Word of God encourages this heart of gratitude and it encourages that to be a part of our prayers to express thanksgiving to God repeatedly. Now here's, here's one example here, but you can find others and like, I'll give you some. Philippians 4, 6, Colossians 2, 7, 1 Thessalonians 3, 9, 1 Timothy 2.1. We looked at that one already. We're not going to look at the rest, but Philippians 4.6, Colossians 2.7, 1 Thessalonians 3.9. We're going to keep moving. Now our next verse here, Paul says, the main thought, again, if, I'm, if you're going to take one thing away, be devoted to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, not through your own strength, but as led and directed and motivated by the Spirit of God working in your life as you keep your focus and your gaze fixed on Jesus Christ, as you appreciate and see how good you really have it, as you have gratitude for how amazing God is and how wonderful He is to have undertaken so completely and thoroughly in your life to have provided and equipped you with everything you could possibly need in this life. Now, have that that gratitude, that grateful attitude, and, and use that as you talk to God. Keep talking to God. Be devoted to talking to God. See the value of that. Being, be obsessed or be sincere or have, have this intensity about wanting to talk to God and include God in your life. And that's the main thought. But then he goes on to say, and I have, that's my prayer for you. He's saying it as a statement, actually as a statement of imperative, like I said, to them, but it's really his prayer for them too. Now he says, and I have some prayer requests for you. He says, meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. So now there's going to be two specific prayer requests that Paul has. Praying also for us, there's going to be two of them. But he starts with just pray for us. And we've seen this before, so we're not going to belabor this point, but I do want you to note one thing here. We have a very personal, detail-oriented God who is interested in specific requests, and that's why Paul can say to them, I want you to pray for us, and then he's going to tell them about specific spiritual, spiritually beneficial things that he is desiring that they would pray for on his behalf. Now, he wouldn't advise that, if he didn't believe that God cared about him or was interested in answering his prayers or was concerned about his well-being. And then the other thing to notice just from this idea of he's saying, again, pray for us. He says he has us here. And that's plural. And I, I brought this out before, but I hope you see that as you look at Paul's writing. Very often we think about the Apostle Paul in the sense of him being the author as the Spirit of God ultimately is the author, but as God's Spirit spoke through the Apostle Paul to write these letters that he wrote, because as being the human instrument that God utilized, the focus is usually on Paul as we read these letters. But if you actually look at the word as to what, that, what Paul is saying, invariably he's speaking in plurals very often, where he's not speaking about himself in an isolated context. He's almost always speaking corporately about himself and others that he's ministering with. And here's another example of that. See, Paul isn't operating by himself. Paul is striving together with other Christians as part of a ministry team. He's working cooperatively cooperatively with others for the furtherance of the gospel. And you have that here as well. Pray also for us. He has companions that he has traveling with him. Timothy's often one of those companions, but there's many others if you look into it in the different letters. See, Christian ministry is never about one person. It's about striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. And you think about even our local church here, that's true here as well. And as you think about being a part of something in a bigger sense, it involves talking to an intimate and personal God about the specific needs of others individually and local churches corporately. So he's saying, pray for us as you see that you're a part of something much bigger. You know, the universal church of Christ, everybody who is a child of God's is a Christ one, a follower of Christ. A believer in Christ, however you would want to put that, you're, you're born into, you're put positionally into Christ. God sees you through the lens of His Son. 
He sees you standing positionally through the work of his son, through the sacrifice of his son. That's how he sees you, wrapped in the righteousness of his son, positionally having that standing of now being identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. And so as you're thinking about that identification, I should want to be talking to God then as I'm a part of something much bigger, this corporate group of believers. I'm a part in the local manifestation or the local application of the church of God. We have local churches. I'm a part of that corporately as well. So yes, I'm an individual, but I'm an individual who's a part of a body on a Again, on a local level and on a universal level. And I should be mindful of that even as I talk to God that I should be wanting to, just as Paul says, pray also for us. Don't just be, as you continue earnestly in prayer, have you have this mindset of being devoted to talking to God. Part of that devotion to talking to God is to talk to God about yourself, but about also the needs of other believers that God has put in your life. And so then he gets to the specifics here. There's two of them. One, that God would open a door for the word is the first specific request. And you think about that. Believers should pray for specific outcomes, pray for specific concerns, pray for specific needs. And prayer is often the primary way, like I said in my introduction this morning, to join or partner with somebody in ministry. Paul says, pray for us. Now, can everybody be with Paul as he's in prison in Rome? writing this letter, as he's about to make a defense of the gospel to Caesar. No. But can everybody be with Paul, joined in the same mission by being a part of the same team, so to speak, praying to the same God with, and bringing these concerns to him? And the answer is yes. You could be a part of that in that way. Now, what's the specific request? God would, that God would open a door. And it refers to God facilitating opportunities to share the truth. And you think about that. Are we praying that for each other? Are we praying that for our church? Are we praying that individually for ourselves? That God would open doors. So sometimes we, I do hear that. I mean, I grew up hearing people saying that, pray for open doors. Well, here you have it. Pray for an open door. But do you know what you mean when you're saying that? Open doors for what? For personal success? Career advancement? No, open, open doors, and we're going to see, for the Word, for the Word of God, to share the Word of God. But I, like, I love how he says, pray that God would open a door, because what I see there is, one, that he wants there to be opportunities, but two, he sees or he realizes that it's God who's going to have to undertake to make those doors open, to make those opportunities or to facilitate those opportunities. God, he sees, is the power source behind this. God is the enabler. God is the one who's making all of this possible. And I think we can't forget that in our prayers. We can pray prayers, but we have to remember it's God who's going to have to undertake to bring those things to fruition. Now, you still have a part in it. God creates opportunities to serve, you pray for those, but you need to be willing to walk through those doors. You, say, you can say on one hand, God, open doors, but what good would open doors do if we're not going to trust God enough to lead us through those doors? You know, there's really two parts to that. Be praying, God, pray that you would open the doors up, and God, pray that you would give me boldness and strength and encouragement so that I could walk through those doors that you're putting in front of me. And you think about you being willing having a willing attitude. When you talk about a positive volitional response, like what is our part in the Christian life? If it's God who enables, if it's God who directs, if it's God who provides, if it's God who empowers, and all that is true, what's your part in this? Well, God's not going to make you, though, be willing to be used by Him. He's going to do everything necessary to make the mission a success, but He's not going to make you willing, though you can pray for it, and He could even assist you in providing you a will to do of His good pleasure he could, he could help with that even, but he's not going to force it on you. But if you ask for that, perhaps he would change your mind. Perhaps you're, you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, I, I'd never pray for open doors because I don't give a rip about there being any open doors. Perhaps that's true. Maybe being honest about it's the best remedy. Maybe God could actually do something now with that because you're saying, I see where I'm at. I know where I'm at. My heart's as hard as a rock as it relates to the Lord. So maybe the prayer that you could start with would be, Lord, soften my heart. And give me a will 
a desire to serve you. It also involves, in addition to being willing, it involves having a burden for, for the lost. It has a, involves having a burden for others. It involves having a vision for others, fellow believers and unbelievers alike. I've quoted before, but a friend of mine when I was young said, a missionary, and he didn't come up with this, but he quoted this to me and I wrote it down, a missionary is anyone who never gets used to hearing the sound of Christless feet marching off into an eternity apart from him. That's the definition of a missionary. One who never gets used to hearing the sound of Christless feet marching off into an eternity apart from him. God, would you give me a burden? Would you give me a vision? There's a song I love, probably should do it as a song of the month sometime, but part of it says, give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see everything that I've been missing. Give me your love for humanity. Are you going to be praying that God would open doors so that you could witness and share the good news of Jesus with others if you don't have a love for humanity, if you don't have a love for people, if you don't have a heart for people or a concern for people, if all you're focused on are your own things and your own matters and your own life? So that's where the prayer comes in. God, change my thinking first so that I could even have a desire like this. And then once I do, help me to have these kinds of prayers where I'd be praying for open doors and then trusting you to walk me through those doors, to carry me through those doors, to enable and empower me as I want to serve you. Now, pray that God would open a door for what, though? For the Word. Now, it refers to the revealed Word of God, specifically the truth about salvation made possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul's primary objective is preaching the gospel of Christ. That is his primary objective. And you see that with this phrase, to speak the mystery of Christ. That he would open a door for the word to give us access to speaking, but for the word of God specifically, but for the message of Christ even more specifically, to speak the mystery of Christ. Now, part of that mystery of Christ refers to that Jews and Gentiles would be one in Christ. He talks about that earlier in Colossians, but here I think he's specifically referring more generically or primarily just to the gospel message. This message that had previously the details of it had been hidden, though there was plenty of insights and pictures and symbolism that was given leading up to Christ, that there would be a coming Savior, that the Messiah would be coming. There's even this idea that the Messiah would have qualities of being a suffering servant, that he would be wounded for our transgressions, he would be bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we would be healed. All we like sheep had gone astray. We had turned everyone to his own way and that the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. That was prophesied and spoken of in the Old Testament. But then we have the culmination of that through the person, of Je- person and work of Jesus Christ as unique. God became man as a son of God, took on a human form, retained his divinity, was fully God, but became fully man so that he could die in the place of sinners like you and I that he could pay the debt completely that you and I owed, that if we would accept by faith his finished work on Calvary, his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf, that if we would trust in that, believe in that, we could be born into God's family, we could become his children, that we could be adopted, that we could be sealed by his spirit, that he would never let us go, and that that was provided entirely apart from us on the basis of what he had done for us. That's the mystery of Christ. That is what Paul is talking about here. That God would open a door for the word, the word about Christ, the message about Christ to be delivered to people who needed to hear it, people who were hopeless and helpless and hellbound apart from God undertaking to present or for them to hear and then respond to the message of hope. You see, you think about opening your mouth, speaking the truth about Jesus Christ. One, of, one time I heard a message about how some people have this idea, well, I'm too shy to tell people about Jesus. There's maybe true that your personality is shy, but you're not too shy because you have the Spirit of God inside of you who could empower you and give you words to say, even if you have a Moses mentality that says, I can't do this, I need somebody else to do this. God says, no, you can, because I'm in you, and with me, you can do anything. Now, does that mean you're going to be exactly like somebody else? No. Does it mean you're going to do it in the exact same way as somebody else? No. Does it mean that you are capable? Yes. You're capable of speaking the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done for a lost and dying world. You are absolutely 
capable of it, and God wants you to do that. Sometimes people say, well, they can, they can just get, get saved through my testimony. I'm just going to try to live a godly life so people that they can, they can get saved through my witness, my testimony in their lives. Pastor Leonard Radke once said on a tape I heard, he said, there ain't nobody who's ever going to get saved by watching your life. I think he might have said bub at the end of that too, bub. But it's true. The primary mission of an ambassador is to deliver a message. You know, we're said to be ambassadors for Christ. It says that God is pleading through us, but he's not, is our life gonna contribute to the credibility of our message? Yes. Is our life important? Witness important? Yes. Testimony important? Yes. But it's not our testimony that's gonna present the message. God wants to plead through us, meaning he's going to have to plead through our words. He wants to plead through us on, on Christ's behalf that men would be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. He wants us to present that message. That's the primary message of an ambassador, to deliver a message. Now, considering the destiny of the lost, when you think about where they're going to go if they don't hear about Jesus Christ, it all but obligates you to speak up. Now, I don't want you to be sharing the gospel out of a sense of obligation or guilt, but I do want you to consider what will happen to people if they never hear about Jesus and in in his love. As you see them as souls that God loves desperately and wants you to love desperately, you're going to have a hard time just passively turning your head the other way and watching them march off into an eternity apart from Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul speaks to that kind of mentality, almost the sense of obligation. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Like, that's not any great thing. Now, he says, for necessity is laid upon me. I feel compelled to share this message, is what he's saying here. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I have a burden that's been put on my soul for the souls of other people. That's what Paul's getting at. See, people are dying. People need to hear about the life giver and that cannot be accomplished through your silence. So Paul says, pray that God would open up a door for the word to be proclaimed, the word about Jesus Christ, the message about Jesus Christ. He ends this verse by saying, for which I am also in chains. For which I am also in chains. And he's just saying, Paul was asking for prayer to continue doing what he had already been doing. He was already in prison for speaking the name of Jesus, for proclaiming the name of Jesus, for sharing the message of Jesus, for refusing to be silenced. You see, serving the Lord comes at a cost. The Bible says that if we will be faithful to serving the Lord, we will suffer for his namesake. And I know for many of us, that natural temptation is then, well, then let's not serve the Lord so we can avoid the suffering for his namesake. If nobody even knows that I'm associated with him, how could I have to suffer for him? And the truth is you wouldn't. Satan doesn't need to sideline somebody who's already sidelined themselves. But Satan's attack is going to be focused on those that are at the front line, those that are proclaiming the name of Jesus, he would want to shut that down. So if you don't ever want to face that, just never tell anybody about Jesus. Just keep it secret. Be a secret agent Christian so that nobody can see the light that's in you, that can see the hope that's in you. And you really will have nothing to fear as it relates to that. Now you'll also be miserable anyway, just so you know. Because when you reject the Lord, resist the Lord, don't Allow the Lord to use you for your intended purpose, for the purpose he has for you. You're not going to be happy. You're going to be very unhappy in that too. So you might as well, if you're going to be unhappy to face the persecution, you might as well do it as unto the Lord, saying, Lord, I know that this is going to come at a cost, but the cost is worth bearing. That's the question you have to ask yourself. Is this going to come at a cost? The answer is yes. Is the cost worth bearing? And the answer, when it comes to speaking about Jesus Christ, it is yes. 
Then his second request is this in verse, our last verse here is very short, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Make what manifest? The word, the message about Jesus Christ, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And that's his second specific request. It's really just one though, that God would open a door for the word to be spoken and then it's a corollary or a connected thought that then once that door is open that I would make it manifest, that I would speak it as I ought to speak it. When you look at this word manifest, it just, it means to make something clearly revealed, to cause something to become clearly revealed. So God's opening the doors for this message and Paul's saying, now pray that when I deliver the message, it would be clear. What a prayer. I mean, really think about it. Pray that God would open the doors for the message to be delivered and then when the door is open, pray that I would deliver the message in a way that would be clear. Man, I don't know. How often you pray that? But shouldn't we be praying that? Especially when you really think about it for a second. Take, take a ba- t- back up a little bit. You naturally lack clarity. If you don't believe me, just ask your spouse. You're not clear. You thought you were being clear, but you weren't clear. That happens all the time. That's one of the number one traumas that takes place within marriages is you think you're speaking very clearly. They have no idea what you're talking about. So you're not naturally clear. But the gospel should be proclaimed clearly. So what's the solution? To pray for clarity when you share the gospel in this last phrase, as I ought to speak, that I would make the message clear, proclaim it clearly, as I ought to, as I ought to. Now, this word to ought, it's a funny word, not used very often, but to be required by obligation, compulsion, or convention. I like compulsion. The love of Christ compels me. I feel compelled to speak this message. So I'm praying that you would pray this for me, that the doors would be open, that when they are, I could speak the message of Christ clearly because I feel compelled to do so when I see how much God loved me and I see the need that other people have. And that's what I believe this refers to primarily is Paul's internal sense of having this compulsion to speak or share this message of hope because he sees how necessary it is for others to see it. Now some say it refers to that he's going to be forced to speak when he goes through the judicial proceedings associated with going before Caesar. I really don't think that that's what the takeaway is, but to each their own if that's, their, if that's your interpretation. But I think he's saying that I would speak the way that I feel compelled to speak in a clear way when those doors are open that I'm asking you to pray for. Now, the question is, do you see how critically important this message is? Do you see how important and how vital this message that Jesus alone can save is? I think about, we don't have a steeple anymore. It was taken off during the renovations, but when the roof was redone years ago. But there's a song that says, under the shadow of our steeple, meaning within the shadow of this building, there's many people who are lost and dying. They do not know the Savior. So, So under the shadow of our steeple, with all the lost and lonely people searching for the hope, that's tucked away in you and me. Within the shadows of our lives as we go about life, in our periphery, periphery are all these people that are searching and needing the hope that we have inside of us, the light that we have inside of us. And that's why Paul says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them who are lost or them who are perishing. This is a message that we ought to speak. Now, are we going to be praying for doors to be opened so that the word or the message about Christ could be delivered, that when it is delivered, it could be delivered in a way that is clear and has clarity in it, and it would be delivered in a way that is delivered by a sense of compulsion or seeing how desperate the need is for this message to be shared. When you break it down like that, what a wonderful prayer that Paul is asking for on his own behalf. Remember, it wasn't long ago we looked at his prayer that he would have boldness. Now add to that that you'd pray that there'd be doors that would be open. He prayed that also previously. But now we have this kind of a a little twist on it here that it would be, doors would be open for me to speak about Christ but in a way that would be clear and that I I would have this sense of 
compulsion or I'd feel compelled to do that. Well, our, our message this morning, devoted to prayer. And again, remember, you're invariably going to be devoted to something. Whether you're voluntarily devoted to it, whether you're involuntarily devoted to it, whether you're consciously devoted to it or unconsciously devoted to it, there's all these things of the temporal world that you're going to be devoted to. And the question you should ask, though, as you leave this morning is, is talking to God one of the things that I'm devoted to? Am I convinced about that? Am I enthusiastic about that? You know, as impossible as it is to comprehend, God wants to hear from you. He's interested in you. Consider how goofy it is to squander access to the divine, sovereign creator. How goofy would that be to have access to a God like that and never take advantage of it, never talk to him? Let's not do that. And then as you think about open doors and clear messages, are those things that we're praying for? May that be true. May we, may we be praying for those kinds of things. Let's pray again this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, pray that you would give us open doors here, even individually and corporately as a church body, to proclaim your truth. Pray that that message, when we do proclaim it, would be clear, that it would be accurate, that people would see the simplicity of the gospel message as we open our mouths for you. Pray that you would give us a sense of being compelled that we would be motivated by your love and a love for people, that we would then have that sense of obligation or even that we'd feel like, how could I not share this message with them? Not because I'm feeling some kind of divine retribution if I don't, but because I see how needy they are and I see how desperate they are to or they should be to have the hope that I have inside of me. Pray that I wouldn't hide it. Pray that I would share it boldly and clearly with those that you bring into my sphere of influence. Thank you for all of this. Pray for even safety out at the camp. In Jesus' name, amen.